Last week, we studied Jonah chapter 1, and Jonah is one of the minor prophets. They are called minor prophets, not because they are less important than the major prophets, but they are called minor prophets because they are shorter than the major prophets. In fact, we see incredible parallels between the minor prophets and the life of Jesus. They are, in fact, very important as part of the biblical canon of Scripture. This morning, in our fellowship hour, we studied the second chapter of what is a healthy church member on biblical theology. And we saw that the practice of biblical theology is to know God himself from the scriptures, of course, through which he revealed himself to us, and to know God's macro story of redemption where we see from the scriptures how the Old and the New Testament fit together to tell one cohesive story of redemption. So, last week, we saw that the sailors were saved by the sacrifice of Jonah, pointing us to Jesus, that we are saved by the sacrifice of himself upon the cross. Scott mentioned that to us this morning, right? We saw the Gentile saviors, uh, saviors, sailors uh, become believers in God, pointing to the gospel transforming the Gentiles in the New Testament. And we saw God's heart for the nations as he sent Jonah to these vicious Assyrians to preach repentance, which points to the gospel's transforming work that we see in the book of Acts. And this is just from chapter 1. And Lord willing, I'll leave it to John Pay to show us the other biblical theologies that we see in the book of Jonah. But the point is that Jesus is the greater Jonah. Matthew 12, 41 says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment at this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, the passage we'll study today from Matthew 8 also has parallels to the story of Jonah. In fact, Scott actually mentioned that this morning. We will see a great storm. We will see someone asleep on a boat. We will see the passengers on the boat fearing for their lives. And we'll see God's redemption of his people. So, please open your Bibles at Matthew chapter 8. We will read from verse 23 to 27, only four verses this morning. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? To help us understand this passage better this morning, And to apply it to our lives, we will divide it into two points, which serves as our outline. Number one, Christ's humanity. And number two, Christ's divinity. Number one, 
Christ's humanity, and number two, Christ's divinity. So point one, Christ's humanity. That's verses 23 to 25. We see in verse 23 that Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples following him, right? If you look there at verse 23, he got into the boat, his disciples followed. And here the storyline continues, what really started in verse 18, the paragraph directly above our passage this morning. If you look at verse 18, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Even earlier in Matthew, we heard from chapters 5 to, chapters, to the end of chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus was on the mountain and he was teaching the people. And here in chapter 8, he comes down from the mountain after the Sermon on the Mount and we see large crowds following him. In fact, at the start of chapter 8, all the way to the end of chapter 9, we have this long section that talks about the authoritative power of the Messiah. And that's where our passage fits in. We see in chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, he healed the man with lep uh, leprosy. Then they moved to Capernaum, where he healed the centurion's servant. Uh, you'll see there in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, when he had entered Capernaum. So now they're in Capernaum. And then they went into Peter's house, and Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law where we read in verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. And that brings us to verse 18 where Jesus is again surrounded by people and he gives instruction to go to the other side. So from Capernaum, now they're going to the other side of the lake. This lake is otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. And it is about 13 miles long from north to south. And it is about 8 miles wide if you would cross from Capernaum to the Decapolis or the region of the Gadarenes where he ends up in verse 28. So if you look at verse 28, and when they came to the other side to the country of the Gadarenes. So that's about 8 miles across. The boat that Jesus and his disciples got on is probably a fishing boat that can hold about a dozen men and a good catch of fish. It is by no means a large boat, and it would not have had any sails. Right, so verse 24 says that without warning, a furious storm came upon the lake so that the waves were sweeping over the boat. It is interesting that the word for storm used here is the Greek word seismos, which means earthquake or literally a sea storm. Now, the Sea of Galilee was notorious for its sudden storms due to the fact that it lies 680 feet below sea level. And what happens is the rapidly rising hot air draws from the southeastern tablelands strong winds whose cold air whips the water into a raging violence. In verse 24, the storm is described as furious or a great storm. And it says that the waves are sweeping over the boat, right? The boat is being swamped. So while this furious storm is raging, we see that Jesus is sleeping in the boat. He was physically exhausted 
and fatigued from all the teaching and the crowds thronging, thronging around him, the healings and, uh, and the driving out of evil spirits, he has been ministering nonstop for days at this point in time when he orders them to go to the other side of the lake. In verse 25, the, the, uh, the disciples wake Jesus and say to him, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. The, there is desperation in their cries to him, as if they wanted to say, do you not care that we are perishing? We are going to drown if you don't do something about the storm. So we see here in verse 23 to 25, the humanity of Christ. Jesus was tired. Jesus slept. The humanity of Christ is important to us. We see in the scriptures that Jesus took on flesh and dwelled among us. He was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit and born into this world into time and space. We know from scripture that Jesus had a human body just like us. He grew from childhood to adulthood as other children grow. At times, Jesus was tired hungry, thirsty, weary, and we know that he died a real death on the cross. Jesus had an ordinary learning process growing up with a human mind that increased in wisdom over time. Jesus had a human soul and human emotions. Before his crucifixion, his soul was troubled, and we see the full range of human emotions in Jesus as he marveled at the faith of the centurion earlier in this chapter or when he wept with sorrow or praying with loud cries and tears. The people around Jesus regarded him as an ordinary man. His brothers and the people in the town where he grew up did not believe him, and they wondered where did he get the wisdom and the mighty works. There is one very important difference between the humanity of Christ and our humanity and that is that Jesus was without sin. He never committed a single sin in his entire life. He was tempted, but he did not sin. The Bible teaches us that he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet was without sin. The humanity of Christ is important for us if he was going to be the Messiah, and our Savior. So here are four reasons why the humanity of Christ is important to us. Four reasons. The first reason why the humanity of Christ is important to us is so that He can be our substitute. If Jesus, if Jesus was not fully human, He could not have died in our place and pay the penalty that we were supposed to pay as a result of our sin. The second reason why the humanity of Christ is important to us is for him to be the one mediator between God and man. We were alienated from God and we needed someone to come in between God and us to bring us back to him. There is only one person who lived, who ever lived, who fulfilled that requirement in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, it says, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 
The third reason why the humanity of Christ is important to us is so that he can be our example. We are called to walk in the same way that he walked, to be changed into his likeness and to be conformed into the image of Christ. And the fourth reason why the humanity of Christ is important for us is so that he can sympathize as our great high priest. Because Jesus was a man, he knows by experience what we go through and how we are tempted. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think the humanity of Christ encourages us to run to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and we can boldly approach him as his children, those called by him, those rescued by him. He made us his very own. We can run to him. Jesus knows our frame. Jesus walked in our shoes. Jesus faced our enemy head on, and he won. He died a real death on the cross. He rose from the, de- from the grave, and he ascended into heaven. Brothers and sisters, our Savior has gone before us so that we can boldly follow him. A second point of application is that Jesus can sympathize with us as our great high priest, yet he calls us to follow him and makes no promises that it will be easy. The disciples follow Jesus into that boat, and they almost paid for it by their lives. Their words were, Lord, save us. We are perishing. We are going to drown. And we should do well to count the cost of following Jesus. We see in the passage right above this, 18 to 22, there are two men with good intentions who wanted to be Jesus' disciples. One was a teacher of the law, and he wanted to follow Jesus, but he didn't seem to want to stick around when he found out that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. And the second first wanted to go and bury his father, and Jesus made it clear that nothing is more important than following him right now. You know, the disciples on the boat, they counted the cost. Peter and Andrew, well, they left their nets and they followed Jesus. James and John, they left their father and their boat and they followed Jesus. Matthew, well, he abandoned his little tax collector booth and he followed Jesus. Listen to this quote from uh, J.C. Ryle. Nothing, in fact, has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's 
army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and to talk fluently of his experience. It has been painfully forgotten that numbers alone do not make strength, and there may be a great quantity of mere outward religion while there is very little real grace. Let us remember this. Let us keep back nothing from young professors and inquirers after Christ. Let us not enlist them on false pretenses. Let us tell them plainly that there is a crown of glory at the end, but let us tell them no less plainly that there is a daily cross in the way. We should be clear about the cost of following Jesus. Jesus bids us daily to take up our cross and follow him. And perhaps you are here today as someone who is not a follower of Jesus. We want to say that we are very grateful that you are here this morning. And we hope that you can study the claims of Christ from the scriptures and that you would even this morning think about the claims that Christ has on your life. You might wonder what this cost of following Jesus is all about. Well, you will be helped to know that those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus were not always Jesus' followers. In fact, the Bible is very clear that we are God's enemies by nature. We have sinned against His holiness. We are not at peace with God by simply being good human beings. The Bible is very clear that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The good news is that God sent His Son to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, and He died on the cross in our place as our substitute. He took the punishment that we rightly deserve upon Himself as He died on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. God raised Jesus up on the third day. He ascended into heaven, and now he rules at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he now invites everyone to repent of their sin and to trust in him completely. Know this, that the call to follow Jesus is a call that bids you to come and die to yourself daily and to live for him. That means you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus. The saving grace that unites a sinful people to a holy God is freely available to those who by conviction repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. But it did not come cheap. Jesus paid for it by his own blood. And therefore, his claim on the lives of those whom he saved from eternal destruction, well, it's absolute. We belong to him. So repent and believe in Jesus. That brings us to our second point, Christ's divinity. It's verses 26 to 27. 
In verse 26, Jesus responds to, the, responds to the disciples' cry for help after they woke him up by saying to the disciples, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And Jesus' response here is different than what we would have expected given what we see in verse 23 to 25. One would have expected Jesus to calm them down, right, or to encourage them to hang in there. But what do we see? Well, we see a rebuke of the disciples. You have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Interestingly, Matthew places Jesus' rebuke of his disciples in the text before he acts in calming the storm. Whereas in the other Gospels, he first calms the storm and then he addresses the disciples. And this is to further emphasize that Jesus was dealing with the disciples here and not merely doing something about the storm. Matthew emphasizes that Jesus was dealing with the disciples' heart in this situation. His rebuke gives us an indication of what disturbed Jesus. Firstly, it was their lack of faith. And secondly, their fear and anxiety over the situation. One commentary had this to say about the disciples' disciples' lack of faith. They failed to see that the one so obviously raised up by God to accomplish the messianic work could not possibly have died in a storm while that work remained undone. They lacked faith, not so much in his ability to save them as in Jesus as Messiah whose life could not be lost in a storm, as if the elements were out of control and Jesus himself the pawn of chance. The disciples' fear and anxiety destroyed their faith in Jesus. And in that moment, they did not trust in Jesus. They were influenced by the conditions they found themselves in. They were influenced by the waves and the storm and the wind. Next, we see the power and authority of Jesus over nature as he rebukes the wind and the waves and it becomes completely calm. Can you imagine for a moment what that would have been like if you were in that boat? You have this furious earthquake of a storm raging around you in this little boat on, you know, on this massive body of water completely out of control and all of a sudden complete and utter calm. Not a noise, not a breeze, not a wave, silence. Everything was calm at the command of Jesus. Verse 27 says that the men were amazed and they asked, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And that really is the climax of this passage. As in their amazement, it must have dawned on these disciples that Jesus just demonstrated the identical sovereignty over the winds and the wave that was attributed to God in the Old Testament. We saw last week in Jonah 1 how the sailors were amazed when the storm was quieted, right? And they feared God. Psalm 107 
Verse 29 says, He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Brothers and sisters, it takes deity to change the weather. As Jesus is progressively revealed to the disciples as the Messiah, their response is right when they asked, What kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So we see here in verse 26 and 27, the divinity of Christ. Jesus demonstrates the same power as God in the Old Testament to declare that he, in fact, is God. We see in Scripture that Jesus is all-powerful. He stilled the storm. He multiplied the loaves and the fish. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is from eternity to eternity as he declares that before Abraham was, I am. When he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Jesus knew everything. He knew people's thoughts. He knew who believed and who did not believe. He even knew people's secrets, like the woman at the well in John 4 found out. Jesus possessed divine sovereignty in that he could forgive sins. He fulfilled scripture and he interpreted the law by saying, but I say to you. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus said, all things have been committed to me by the Father. We see that people would worship angels if they appear to them and the angels will quickly rebuke them, right? But Jesus, Jesus accepted Worship. Jesus is worthy of worship. Revelation 5.13 says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The passage that Mark read for us, Earlier today, from Colossians 1 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 2, 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Matthew 1, 23, And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Brothers and sisters, it is clear from Scripture, Jesus is Lord, and the divinity of Christ is important for us for the following three reasons. The first reason why the divinity of Christ is important to us is that only someone who is infinitely God could bear, all, uh, could bear the, the, the full penalty of all the sins of all those who would ever believe in him. Let me say that again. Only someone who is infinitely God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all those who would believe in him? The second reason why the divinity of Christ is important for us is that salvation is from the Lord. The message of the Bible is designed to indicate that no created thing could ever save man. Only God himself could. And the third reason why the divinity of Christ is important for us is that only someone who was fully God could be the mediator between God and man, both to bring us back to God, but also to reveal to us who God is. So, what does that mean for us? 
Well, I think the first point is that the divinity of Christ leads us to worship, to be amazed at who He is, to realize what He has done for us on the cross, to consider His character, His nature, His essence, and to let Jesus fuel our worship. We need to be a church that worships Jesus in response to the truth we hear about Jesus. Worship is the right response to the truth we hear about God. Brothers and sisters, I'm grateful for this church and for the way that you all worship the Lord. And perhaps if you sit right at the back and you can't hear the congregation singing, I, this place in the front, move up. It is a great encouragement to hear this church sing. And I pray that we as a church would continue to grow in our worship of the Lord as we grow in our understanding of who He is and as we grow in our love for Him. Our worship should be fueled by the truth of who Jesus is. The second point of application is that biblical faith is utterly Christ-centered. So many people today make faith out to be something that is man-centered, thinking that by simply believing or staying positive, they really can get anything they want. And I ask you, what is at the center of a faith like that? Is it God or is it man? It plays with the idea that I can somehow manipulate God into doing what I want when I want it. What we see here in Matthew 8 is that biblical faith is always Christ-centered. It is not about what Christ can do for us. It is instead about who Christ is for us. You know, it is that faith that caused two of the disciples in the boat here, Peter and John, to stand up before the religious elite after the ascension and the Spirit came down to say to them, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. It is a faith that is concerned about the glory of God as we trust in His finished work for us on the cross. Our faith should look different because of the divinity of Christ. Our faith should look different because of the divinity of Christ. The third point of application is that we are challenged to trust in Jesus amid the storms of our lives. Do you waver in your faith as the storms of life surround you? I certainly do. These storms have the ability to remove our focus from Jesus and to place the focus on ourselves or on the conditions or the circumstances around us, on the winds and the waves. And these storms can take many forms in our lives. Perhaps you have found yourself in the midst of a storm lately. No doubt in a room this large, many of us are going through a storm right now. It is in the storms of life where the humanity and the divinity 
of Christ can minister to us as we are challenged to trust in him. We need to trust in the power of Jesus and in the compassion of Jesus in the storms of our lives. Well, we have now looked at the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ, and we just need to address as conclusion how these two doctrines fit together. How can Jesus both be a helpless baby and all-powerful? How could he possess a physical body but be omnipresent? Does that make the Bible self-contradictory? Well, soon after the apostolic generation passed away, heresies began to creep into the church about the person of Christ. And here's three heresies that crept into the early church as the apostolic generation passed away. Number one, Arianism, believing that the Son of God was not fully, that, sorry, that the Son was not fully God, merely the first and great, greatest of created things. The second heresy, heresy is Apollinarianism, believing that Jesus had a human body, but not a human mind or spirit. The third heresy was Nestorianism, believing that there were two separate persons in Christ, a human person and a divine person. Well, the church gradually pieced together the truths of Scripture about the person of Christ. And the precise understanding of uh, the person of Christ was formulated and articulated in the Chalcedonian Creed in 451 A.D. This is how the Chalcedonian Creed describes the person of Christ. I would recommend you fasten your seatbelt. Perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood. Consubstantial. Coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. One and the same Christ to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusably, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Jesus Christ. The Chalcedonian Creed. So we see two natures in Christ, a divine nature and a human nature in one person. Brothers and sisters, that is how Jesus can be tired yet all-powerful or omnipotent, as we saw in the passage this morning. How he can be learning yet knowing all things. Why he can be a baby in the manger and uphold the universe by his word of power. How he can be in heaven, physically, but present with us. His divine nature and his human nature in one person. So this morning we looked at the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ and we saw that he is fully man so that he can sympathize with us and that he is fully God so that he can save us. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us to our nature, but you made a plan. We praise you that Jesus took on flesh and paid for us, paved the way for us to be reconciled to you through his sacrifice. Father, we confess that it is difficult for our human minds to wrap ourselves around the humanity and divinity of Christ. But Father, nonetheless, we thank you that everything we know about you, you have showed us through the scriptures and that we can trust you. And Father, we this morning with our human minds come to you and we praise you for what you have done, that you rescued us, that you saved us, that you drew us out from our sin, that you called us, that you translated us from darkness to light. Father, we thank you for the person of Jesus. We praise you for his saving work. We praise you that he knows our frame, that he is in heaven right now interceding for us, that he is our great high priest, that we can boldly run to him, that we are yours and that we have been secured by the blood of your son. Father, we pray that we would grow in our understanding of who you are as a church, in our love for who you are as a people. We pray that you'll be glorified through us as your people. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.